From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. We've been predicting a fall surge since the COVID crisis began, and it's officially here. In the United States, we currently have more COVID-19 cases than any other time since the crisis began. But the impact of this wave feels a little bit different. So to talk more about the crisis and what it means for organizations on the front lines, I've brought back coronavirus expert Christopher Kearns. Hey, Christopher. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ray. On the one hand, I'm happy that you're back. But on the other hand, it is definitely a sign that things are not trending in the right direction since you are our resident coronavirus expert. You are not the first person to tell me that it's always bad news when I darken their door. So I'm used to it. (laughs) I want to start with just an update on coronavirus more broadly. What are we actually seeing when it comes to cases across the United States? Well, on Friday, October 23rd, the U.S. recorded 83,757 cases across the country, which actually broke the previous July 16th record by almost 10,000 cases. So it's very clear that we are approaching our third peak in the United States. And interestingly, though, none of the country's hotspots are in big cities. They are Mm. largely in rural and exurban areas. Hospitalization rates, though, overall are up 40% in the past month alone. And by the way, even though the urban areas are not experiencing the biggest spikes, we are seeing this everywhere. We are seeing significant or moderate spikes just about everywhere in the country. So cases are going up everywhere, particularly in rural areas, and hospitalizations are up. In fact, almost all of the counties with the worst outbreaks have populations under 50,000, and most have populations under 10,000. Do we know what's actually driving these outbreaks? The biggest driver really is weather. People are going inside. We saw that driving a lot of the outbreaks in the summer when in the sunbelt states, we started to see a lot of cases rise as people went inside because it was so hot. Now we are seeing cases rise because it's getting colder and people can no longer do as many social activities outside. So as people go inside, we are inevitably going to be seeing a rise in cases. As unfortunate as this is, that's sort of what we expected as we moved into the fall. But Christopher, I'm a little bit surprised that you didn't mention COVID fatigue. There's a lot of conversation in the media about the fact that people just aren't doing safe COVID practices anymore because folks are pretty sick of it, right? Seven, eight, nine months into the pandemic. I mean, it's a real phenomenon. We see it in North America. We see it in Europe. COVID fatigue, pandemic fatigue, however you want to refer to it, is a real thing. And While it's driving in part some of the spikes that we're seeing in areas that have been hit before, that's not the main driver. What it is affecting, though, is the response to the surges. Hmm. So we're seeing in most municipal state governments a real reluctance to reimpose a lot of the lockdown restrictions that we saw earlier in the spring. It's not very politically viable. And we see this not just in the United States, but we're seeing it across Europe as well. We're not seeing the same return to restrictions we saw in the spring, despite the fact that they've been seeing pretty significant spikes for several weeks now. So this leads me to think that despite rising numbers, there won't actually be more lockdowns coming. I think it's going to vary. We are starting to see some reversals of reopening 
nationwide. So we're seeing some of that in California. We're seeing some of that in New York and Texas and certain areas. We're likely to see some of it. I just don't think we're likely to see a return to the major lockdowns that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, unless we start to see death counts and death rates at the level that we saw back then. Currently, although we're seeing huge spikes in cases, the death rate is not rising at the same proportion, which is the closest thing to good news that I could share. And if I think back to the sort of mindset of, in this case, Americans back in the spring, everyone was focused on flattening the curve. And flattening the curve specifically had to do with making sure there was enough hospital capacity to handle that surge of COVID cases. Of course, what we saw is that we did have enough capacity to handle surges, even in places like New York and New Orleans and Detroit. Does that mean that we'll actually be able to handle the surge that we're seeing now? We're having more challenges this time around. So the big difference is that much of the surge that we're seeing today is in rural areas. If you were to look at where we're seeing spikes in cases, they are significantly higher in rural and exurban areas than they are in urban and suburban areas. And as we have talked about before, we see significant bed shortages and capacity shortages in rural areas. So we're already hearing reports from across the country in those rural areas that they are at capacity. Patients are having to be transported hundreds of miles just to be able to get access to a bed. Mm. So we are seeing more of those capacity crunches now than we saw in the spring, despite the fact that survival rates are significantly higher, recovery rates are a lot faster. The reality is the capacity crunch is real in the areas where we're seeing the biggest spikes. And in theory, every healthcare organization, whether they saw a surge or not, has had, right, about eight months to prepare for this moment, maybe even more than that, depending on when they started paying attention to the crisis. What are the things that clinical leaders really have to get right this time, knowing that they've had the chance to prepare? One is have the PPE plan in place. So make sure you have access to supplies. Most places have done a really good job with this. So most providers we've spoken to are not experiencing the shortages that they saw in the spring, hmm. even those that are capacity crunched right now. Most have stockpiled pretty adequately. We will see if they have done enough as the spikes continue to wear on. We're, we're nowhere near the peak of where we're seeing the, the new infections uh, coming from. But I think that's going to be one thing that everyone has to make sure that they do right. Second is have an overfill capacity plan, meaning if you are likely to be filled to capacity, can you build up field hospitals fast enough? Can you transport patients to other urban and suburban facilities fast enough? Do you have a transport strategy for getting patients that are in need to a bed as soon as possible? And last is just to make sure that we have access to all the various treatments that are coming online and available to patients that will help them recover faster. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. There's a lot at stake for healthcare in the 2020 elections. For a breakdown of the key issues, latest developments, and insights on how policy changes will impact healthcare leaders, go to advisory.com slash 2020 elections. There you'll find a really great piece on the public option and what it would really mean for hospitals. And be sure to check out our rundown on the debates and where the candidates stand on the issues you care about. No matter what happens in the elections, healthcare will change next year. 
Find out what you need to know about and prepare for by visiting advisory.com slash 2020 elections. When you're talking about some of the list of things that leaders should do, one of the alarm bells going off in, in my head is that some of those things are very expensive solutions. And if we're talking about the impact on rural hospitals, right, do they actually have the ability to implement some of these solutions when we know that their margins before the, the pandemic were razor, razor thin? Well, for the most part, there's still assistance out there to help with transporting patients. So hopefully when it comes to the ability to move patients from site to site, the funds are available either publicly or from the partner facilities that you will be moving them to. When it comes to PPE, most have done a pretty good job of stockpiling that in advance, so they should be in good shape. Where we have to worry is in the crowding out of elective procedures. Hmm. So most providers have not canceled elective procedures entirely in the way that they did in the spring. There's no mandate to do so in most places. Some have had to do so voluntarily just to be able to accommodate the surge. But the longer that the surge wears on, the more procedures that are going to be crowded out at these rural and exurban facilities. That is going to eat into their bottom line and eat into their cash reserves pretty quickly, which will require most likely some additional assistance coming from the federal government, which at this point we can't expect until after the election at the earliest. And it's likely going to require a lot of extra support because most small hospitals simply do not have the cash reserves to be able to maintain themselves without that extra revenue for a significant period of time. That puts rural hospitals in a really specific predicament. On the one hand, they need to deploy as many of their resources as possible to the fight against the coronavirus pandemic. But at the same time, they need to keep patients and people in their community engaged enough to want to come in for elective procedures so that they can keep their cash flow high. I mean, those feel like two very, very difficult things to balance at the same time. Absolutely. And there's really no reason that they need to do this alone. So many rural hospitals have been partnering with their urban and suburban counterparts for years. I think this is a time to double down on those partnerships to ensure that we have adequate capacity, we have adequate supplies, we have adequate support. Will that be a glide path to acquisition? It's really anyone's guess. It will depend a lot on local circumstances, but I think that those partnerships are going to be critical in the next few months. And I'm assuming one of the ways that those partnerships can really work out is actually in the incredibly important resource of just human capital, right? Making sure that you have enough physicians and nurses and medical assistants and so forth going around. What's your advice to maybe some of those rural organizations that maybe don't have enough staff to deploy against a surge? I think this really gets into a lot of the work that you and I have been doing for the last several years, Ray, which is how do we expand our clinical footprint without expanding the number of staff. This means really leaning on APPs, nurse practitioners, uh, RNs to do a lot of things that we historically would have had physicians do. But I think in times of crisis, we really need to lean on them to be able to expand capacity where necessary. And often that will require partnership with facilities that have plenty of staff. So this will require partnership with some of those urban and suburban hospitals. But I think in this case, it's absolutely necessary. And if you have not already made a plan for securing more APPs to move into your facilities in times of crisis, now is absolutely the time to do so. 
And honestly, we saw this actually happen in the reverse in the spring, right? When a place like New York was getting hit with a surge, I think I saw that there were a couple rural providers in even Maryland, close to us, that said, hey, nobody is coming to our hospital right now. We're locked down. Let us send our nurses, our physicians, our staff to help you. So I almost feel like the message to the suburban and urban organizations has to be, remember who helped you in your time of need. Now might be your chance to repay the favor. Absolutely. Now is the time to return that favor, pay that debt. We know that if rural hospitals can't handle the crisis of this moment, it is possible that they will close. I know, and you've come on the podcast to talk about this, that the CARES Act has helped here. My question, though, is has that been enough? It's certainly helped a whole lot. So one of the things that the CARES Act did, and probably the most important thing that it did, is that it staved off a fiscal and financial crisis with hospitals and health systems across the country. Essentially, at the very beginning of the pandemic, when hospitals had to lock down all of their electives, that's 51% of their revenue, they started hemorrhaging cash. And they needed to draw down a lot of their liquidity facilities. Hmm. That was not necessary once the CARES Act was passed. And it really has staved off mass bankruptcies across the country. Now, not all of that money has been drawn down yet. So there is still some that's available. But I think the bigger concern is some of that money was in the form of loans. So a lot of the accelerated payments, the advanced payments, they have to be paid back. And the interest rate is about 10%. And it has to be paid back over a relatively short time frame. I Mm. think going forward, what a lot of providers are going to be looking for is at least some relief there. Can they be looking for more generous repayment terms, a longer repayment period, or a lower interest rate, for example? I think that's one of the things that will help, especially as we get into the winter months. Now, the big open question is, if they have to lock down for any extended period of time again, Will the existing CARES Act funds be enough? The answer is probably not because most are nowhere near whole yet, meaning Mm -hmm. most have not recovered all of their volumes that they would have otherwise had in a normal year. So in that case, are we expecting any future COVID relief bills? I think that most providers are certainly hoping for it. We have seen a lot of these relief bills stall in Congress, and there's a lot of political chicken that's going on right now. I think we could probably expect something across the lame duck session after the election is is done. Well, Christopher, I want to thank you so much for coming back on Radio Advisory. You probably remember the final question that I ask on every episode. In this moment, as we see COVID cases rising, what do you want healthcare leaders to focus on this week? Look at your COVID plan. Make sure that you have crossed all your T's and dotted all of your I's. Every organization around the country now has no excuses to not have a plan for when the surge hits them because everyone knew it was going to be coming at some point, at some point in this year. So if you have not made that plan, now is the time to double down on that. But if you have, make sure that you have adequate access to the resources, both clinical labor and in supplies to make sure you can withstand this next surge. It is the most important thing that you can be doing for your communities across the next month. Yeah, I could not agree more. Thanks for coming on, Christopher. And don't forget to go vote. (laughs) 
Here at Advisory Board, we spend a ton of time talking about no regrets solutions. But if I'm reflecting on this moment, it's not a moment of no regrets. It's a moment of no excuses because every part of the healthcare industry has had the time to prepare for this moment. If you're feeling unsure about what to do next, Advisory Board has a whole suite of resources aimed at helping you fight the pandemic. Whether it's as simple as getting extra PPE or as complex as building your own field hospital. So remember, we're here to help. So that me, man, we are. You, I'm like, I'm like getting some weird. I need to. Okay. I feel like I just need to be punched in the face. That was certainly, <laughs> you know, some, just honestly, I'm just, I'm about to start my own underground fight club. I'm not even joking. Like, I just need some sort of outlet. You can totally use that in the podcast if you want. <laughs>